0: Welcome to the Disney View Podcast. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer. He's a one-time cast member, and he's been to Disney World literally hundreds of times. Listen in as he talks about one of his favorite things, the Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando, and occasionally beyond the Orlando theme park. And now, here's your host. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David.
1: Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, I promised this was going to be a multi-part podcast about the 20K attraction and the uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And I'd like to finish off the discussion uh, by talking about what became of the area. So, last time I talked about the 20K ride and its backstory, development, and the, uh, I played the ride audio for you. On this week's podcast, I wanted to take a look at why it was closed and what plans Disney had in place for the space... And how the space is currently being used. Now, we all know that in 1994 it was temporarily closed, but a source tells us that it was not, in fact, intended to be permanently closed at that time. Apparently, Disney was seeking a corporate sponsor for the 20K ride to raise money for its rehabilitation, as in brought to you by Brand X Toilet Bowl Cleaner, which clearly didn't come to pass and it wasn't until early 1996 that they actually admitted that the 20k ride was closed forever. There are many rumors as to why the 20k ride closed. Some say it was because of a very high maintenance cost, others because it was difficult for handicapped people to access, and yet others because of the spotty air conditioning sometimes left it, let it get too hot inside and people would faint. Of course, it was a fear of the giant squid that sent those people down, not the heat. No, 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 it had to be the length of the voyage. That must have been it. Had to be. Now, Jim Hill, from Jim Hill Media has what I think is the real story behind the 20k ride shutdown, and as you're about to find out, the conspiracy ran far deeper than anyone might have imagined. So he says, if I had to pick the most extreme example of Walt Disney World staffers deliberately faking out folks back in Burbank, I'd have to say that it was 20,000 leagues under the Ovid Sea. Or as this incident is better known in Walt Disney World inner circles, the time we slipped Mike Ovitz a Mickey. Okay, in order to properly appreciate the story, you have to understand that while Walt Disney World visitors may have loved the Magic Kingdom's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea ride, the park's operations staff absolutely hated it. Why? Because the subs were a maintenance nightmare. Each year, the ops crew would have to pour tens of thousands of dollars and, and devote hundreds of hours of backbreaking labor into the upkeep of the attraction. They'd spend weeks scraping scum on the bottom of the lagoon, repainting the coral, repairing the fish, and so on. And they just had grown tired of dealing with this annual headache. Now, on that note and aside, I can remember distinctly, when I used to ride as a cast member up to the cast member entrance, you'd pass behind the 20K uh, attraction, and that's where the dry docks were located. Now, that was in 1993, and there were always a couple of subs in the dry dock being repaired, and there was always paint tests ongoing, and so many of the props were out there being repaired. Now, I can only imagine that if I could detect that just in passing, how really big and bad the uh, repair job must have been. So returning to Jim Hill's story, when Disney's uh, CEO Michael Eisner put out the word in the summer of 1994 that theme parks really had to start towing the line cost-wise, Walt Disney World Ops staff finally saw their chance. By shutting down this single Fantasyland attraction, they could automatically save the company Boku Bucks, as well as shine in Team Disney Burbank's eyes for moving so quickly to honor Eisner's wishes, not to mention putting an end to their enormous annual maintenance headache forever. What these Walt Disney World Ops guys hadn't counted on was that the public would get so upset when they found out the 20K had quickly and quietly been closed back in September 1994. Within weeks of the attraction's closure, calls and letters began pouring into the company headquarters in Burbank insisting that Disney immediately reopen this Fantasyland favorite. Of course, the news of the uproar didn't sit well with the Walt Disney World Ops, Operations staff. Here they had finally found a way to close 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and, and they intended to keep this Fantasyland ride closed forever, no matter what they had to do. So they were ready in early 1995, when then-president and Walt Disney Company Michael Ovitz came through the Walt Disney World Resort on a uh, corporate familiarization trip. Of course, while Ovitz was touring the Magic Kingdom, he brought up all the guest complaints about 20K being closed. In response to this, the op staff insisted that they had only shut down the Fantasyland attraction because the ride was in such awful shape, not to mention being unsafe. Ovitz said, well, I'd like to personally take a look at the attraction, judge for myself on whether or not the ride can be repaired and reopened. The Walt Disney World operations staff said, well, okay, Mr. Ovitz, but we'll have to do this early tomorrow morning before the other guests enter the Magic Kingdom. Which is why the following morning at 7 a.m., Mike Ovitz found himself standing at the queue of the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea as a sub that was loudly belching smoke came rumbling up to the dock. The Disney company president then climbed down the stairs and found a quarter inch of water sloshing around the bottom of the boat. When Mike pointed this out, the Walt Disney World Ops staff said, Well, you have to understand a lot of our subs are over 20 years old, Mr. Ovitz, so many of them have developed a small pinhole leaks over time. The sub then lurched away from the docks and took Ovitz and the ops crew on somewhat of a jerky trip around 20K track, with the attraction soundtrack barely audible through the ship's crackling loudspeakers. Now, as you might imagine, once the boat pulled up to the dock, Michael quickly climbed out of the mildewed interior. He then turned to uh, Disney World's operations staff and told them that they had made the right decision. That given the shape 20K was currently in, the safest and smartest thing to do with this Fantasyland attraction was to keep it closed. Permanently. Now I don't have to tell you smart people that Walt Disney World's operations staff had sandbagged ovates. They had deliberately picked out the 20K sub that was in the worst possible mechanical shape for him to ride in. They recruited a ride operator that they could uh, trust to give Michael Ovitz the roughest ride imaginable. They had even thrown a few buckets of water down to the bottom of the boat to simulate a pinhole leak, all in an effort to leave Ovitz with the impression that Walt Disney World subs were beyond salvaging. So if you're one of the poor souls who got sucked in by that fake video shoot at Disney MGM Studios back in the summer of 1989, don't feel too bad. After all, at least you weren't on the receiving end of one of Dick Nunes' infamous paint jobs or torpedoed, like Mike Ovitz was with that 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea sub scam. Now, here's the rest of the story according to the 20k.com and a former uh, cast member named Bass. The subs used to have water sloshing around inside where guests sat, but that was when the waterfalls at the entrance of the exit caverns poured over the upper decks of each sub. So Fantasyland Management Damned the waterfalls. the water fell to both sides of the sub, not directly on them. In order for the 20K sub boats to operate, they had to adhere to Florida laws in regards to watercraft. The hulls of these boats didn't leak. If they got water inside, it was rare because of rain coming through the hatches or something else. Another point was that Fantasyland management did not rehab 20K annually. 20K opened in 1971 with the park opening. By 1978, 20K had gone through one rehab in seven years of operation. I think 20K went through only two or maybe three rehabs in its entire history. The other big problem was that Disney had dynamited the Seven Seas Lagoon until they hit the Florida Aquifer to bring up water to fill the lagoon, which is man-made. Nearby Bay Lake is natural, so all the water in Walt Disney World is derived from the Florida Aquifer, not city water. It was the same water that was used to fill 20K, They had to chlorinate the heck out of it to keep it clean and clear, and it was the chlorine and what other chemicals that ate the paint off of everything in the 20K lagoon, including the boats. Water in the lagoon was also used to help cool the engines of the sub, which I'm sure caused a multitude of technical problems. Originally, the 20K sub-engines were run on natural gas, which were mostly internal combustion engines powered by vehicles in the park, but economics and maintenance forced them to switch out the sub-engines and convert to diesel. Those marine-grade diesels ran and ran and ran. If there was any maintenance issues with them, it was because the monkeys, rather than mechanics, uh, were used to maintain the boats. To their credit, the maintenance folks looked like they were always shorthanded and had to wear many hats, had low maintenance budgets, and had to fix things with gum and bailing wire, figuratively speaking. So if maintenance was lacking, it was that Fantasyland Management shorted 20K maintenance budgets, which is why they were rehabbed only two or three times in the 20-plus years. If they had maintained them on a regular basis, it wouldn't have been so expensive to fix. Now, don't believe everything you read. Wheelchair bound guests were not a factor in shutting down 20K. Many disabled people rode that ride. And the Americans with Disability Act protects rides like 20K that were grandfathered in and allowed to continue to operate, even though they weren't truly wheelchair accessible. Disney's main focus of making money and spending as little on their attraction in order to make that money seemed to be the cause here. Now, another site, the Disney Vacation Planner, said it's most likely a combination of slow load times, the high cost of maintaining the attraction, and the fact that even though it was well-liked, it was getting a little old hat compared to some of the attractions at the other parks. For a while after the shutdown, the subs were hanging around in the lagoon, but eventually they were removed to a back-lot scrapyard. Disney auctioned off a numerous portholes from the subs and sold them on eBay uh, for $125 each, and Years later, eight of the subs were auctioned off to a scrap dealer who, uh, who tore off every other imaginable, desirable part and sold many of them money eBay. It's reported that these eight subs have literally been ground up and buried in a landfill, apparently so decayed and picked clean that they were just dangerous fiberglass holes. And according to legend, the remains had to be buried in sealed containers because the paint contained lead, and Disney even tried to recall some of the parts the scrap dealers had bought. However, at least one owner of some of the parts did a lead test in, on some of the paint and found none. It could just be that Disney wanted the parts back because they realized they'd become worth something to people. Now, not quite all the subs met this sad fate. For a time, one sub was cut in half lengthwise and moved to a pool to decorate the queue area of Disney's MGM Studios special effects tour. But it's since been removed... It was last seen wrapped up on a trailer to be moved somewhere. Now, it's debated whether that sub was actually one from the ride. Uh, it was, seemed a little small for to be uh, one that was actually from the uh, attraction itself. One of the subs is reported to have been buried on Disney property as part of a ritual they observed when a ride is retired. There's also a fun rumor that one of the subs was donated to the Smithsonian Museum, but this rumor has been confirmed as false. More exciting was that possibly two or three of the subs were sent down to Disney's Caribbean resort island, Castaway Cay, which is where all the Disney cruises ended up. One of them was completely submerged and you could scuba dive near it. But subsequent to that, there have been reports that the subs have gone missing and are presumed to have been removed by Disney, destroyed by a hurricane, or simply crumbled away. But there was one report early on, shortly after they were moved there, that was pretty good. It read, The sub at Castaway Cay is completely submerged, with the top of the sub probably six feet under. It does have a rope line tied around it, but it lets you get fairly close. And if you wanted to, it would be quite easy to get right up on it. What kept me personally from doing this was the four-foot-long Barracuda sitting right on top of it. Honestly, that thing was freaking me out. But the sub looked at home there, fishing, fish swimming by it, completely underwater, in the ocean, not on a track. And let me tell you, when you're floating along it, this thing is huge. It's almost eerie floating above something that big. I probably spent 30 minutes just staring at it, knowing there was a, uh, no chance I'd see it again. They have a huge roped-off area to snorkel in. I mean, literally acres big. And the sub is located way out in the back corner of this area. Basically, if you're out where the sub is, you're there for a reason. And there I was, the only person out by the sub at that time. In fact, to be honest, it was a lot of work to get back to shore afterward. I was exhausted. And that was the story of, what they, of, of the uh, subs being there. Now, so the uh, attraction closed, and uh, they finally uh, took them out and made it a permanent closure. But after that, there was a lot of speculation about what was the space would be used for. Now, based on guest surveys, Imagineering knew that Walt Disney World guests thought that the Magic Kingdom was long overdue for a new thrill ride. The last somewhat thrilling attraction that had been added to the park was the uh, Troubled Alien Encounter back in 1995. Before that, you had to go all the way back to 1992 when Splash Mountain opened in Frontierland. The old 20K site, positioned at the outermost edge of Fantasyland and Tomorrowland, was obviously a prime piece of Magic Kingdom real estate and a tall new thrill ride built here would probably grab people's attention as soon as they entered the hub. The attraction would naturally serve as a weenie to draw people over to that side of the park, thereby generating great guest foot traffic into Fantasyland, Tomorrowland, and Mickey's Toontown Fair, as well as increasing the revenue at the shops and restaurants in this part of the park. Now, as I understand it, everyone in Imagineering agreed that the 20K site offered some tremendous opportunities, but no one could agree on what sort of attraction should be built in that spot. So, according to legend, what happened was there were two schools of thought that uh, Imagineering divided up into. Those who thought that any attraction that was proposed proposed to replace 20K had to be a Jules Verne-like attraction, and those who thought that any new thrill ride that was planned for this part of the Magic Kingdom had to be a good neighbor to Fantasyland and to Mickey's Toontown Fair, and that this attraction should be kid-friendly and fantasy-based, and perhaps maybe cartoony in nature. So, given that... The uh, Walt Disney Imagineering team felt that it, the best way to handle the problem was to put two different Imagineering teams to work on the project. One that would develop a Jules Verne type of ride, and the other would be tasked to come up with an attraction that would fit comfortably be- between Fantasyland and Mickey's Toontown Fair, but still, thrill guests. Hard as it may be to imagine, it's my understanding that neither team knew about each other. Each thought they were the only team tasked with working on replacing 20K. Now, the Jules Verne group came up with a number of ideas, and not surprisingly, a couple of them revolved around 20K. There was a theme motion-based simulator and a Nautilus walkthrough proposed by the group. Still, this group of Imagineers wanted to come up with a ride concept that was bold, new, and exciting and would grab the Walt Disney World management's attention, but still have that old Jules Verne feel. But they didn't stop with 20K. They moved on to uh, other attractions uh, based on other sci-fi stories Uh, Including the island at the top of the world, the black hole, and Tron. And they hit upon the idea of using the recently released Disney animated film called Atlantis. Atlantis was supposed to be something bold and new for the Disney feature animation, a widescreen uh, sci fi film animation uh, developed in the Jules Verne tradition. Atlantis had brave explorers, deep diving subs, giant squids, lost civilizations, and best of all, an exploding volcano. And it was directed by Gary Wise and Kirk Trousdale, who were both uh, behind Disney's successful Beauty and the Beast. The exploding volcano definitely caught their attention, and they actually considered making a new thrill ride that could logically be housed inside a mountain. Guests had told them they wanted a new thrill ride in the Magic Kingdom, but not necessarily a roller coaster. In answer to the question, guests' favorite new ride at Walt Disney World was the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror over at the MGM Studios. So using this as a basis for the idea, the Imagineers hit on what they thought was the it. Their attraction would start off as a standard running-on-rails roller coaster. Midway through, the ride system would suddenly transform, changing to a hang-from-above coaster, and what might cause the change? Well, the erupting volcano. They batted around ideas for names and finally settled on Fire Mountain to capture the essence of the volcano exploding, and to bring to life the fact that this was another Disney Mountain, following along with Space, Big Thunder, and Splash Mountain. Now, did I mention there was another team working on a design? They, too, started out with guest surveys. They focused on a uh, guest favorite being Splash Mountain in Frontierland. And they also noticed that guests complained about an hour-long wait to ride that attraction. A flume attraction was the obvious choice for this group of Imagineers. But their approach had uh, to do something cartoony was a little bit problematic, and that's when they talked with people in consumer products who saw a new demand for Disney Villains. It took some time, but uh, they decided on building a sort of flume ride based around all of the Disney villains. Of course, it should be called Villain Mountain. The Imagineers on this team didn't stop there, though. They had reportedly dozens of ideas for the attraction. So many ideas that they had to change from a Villain Mountain uh, single ride to a concept that was a whole new land of the Magic Kingdom. Now, through their proposal, we know that the basic concept was that guests could enter a new land of the Magic Kingdom from Fantasyland via a gateway that would be built between the old Pinocchio House restaurant and the new Ariel's Grotto, kind of over by where 20K was. Wandering down a dark and twisty cobblestone street, they'd find a grubby collection of villain-themed shops and restaurants. There'd be numerous costumed uh, Disney villains lurking about, ready to sign autographs, pose for pictures, and generally cause mirth. Maybe an Alt- Ursula-themed ride like Dumbo, and of course a uh, Villain Mountain, a craggy, sinister peak modeled after the Chernabog's perch from Night on Bald Mountain. Scary laughter and screams would echo out from the caves and cut into all sides of the mountain. This group of Imagineers really felt that they had a winner with Villain Mountain. But so did the first group of Imagineers with Fire Mountain. When they were ready, each group made a presentation to Walt Disney World management. And fortunately, or unfortunately for both, management couldn't decide. Each of those proposed ride concepts was so distinct and so strong that the management was dazzled by them. Either would make a great addition to the Magic Kingdom, and each was an attraction that was guaranteed to drive up attendance as well as to provide a strong hook for promoting the park. But there was a thematic problem with Fire Mountain and its concept. It just didn't fit in that location. Still, it was a great idea, and Disney World management considered possibly putting it in Adventureland. Now, reportedly, they did some low-tech studies by lofting balloons behind Pirates of the Caribbean and then walking around the Magic Kingdom to see if the proposed height of the attraction would make it visually intrude on some other theming around the parks. The Imagineers even checked the view around the Seven Seas Lagoon. The general consensus was that Fire Mountain would fit fine in that corner of the Magic Kingdom. But, when viewed from the beach of the Polynesian, the smoking volcano in the distance made a truly inspired addition to the resort's theming. And that was great, except the original intent was to replace the 20K ride in Fantasyland. And so they had two attractions and two locations they had to put under considerations. And that's reportedly where they decided to let Michael Eisner and his brain trust uh, sort out which attraction should be added to the Magic Kingdom. Now, you have to think about this for a moment, because it was kind of a shrewd move, because Either mountain was expensive, and by showing him both, he may get excited and may agree to greenlight one, or potentially both of them. Now, Eisner liked what he saw from both, and tentatively agreed to put both attractions into production. But since Villain Mountain was a larger endeavor, Fire Mountain would be built first. Now, under the tentative construction timeline that they laid out, the initial site preparation and survey work for Fire Mountain would begin in the summer of 1999. The attraction would then be officially announced by that fall as part of Walt Disney World's annual press extravaganza. And construction would hopefully start in January 2000 and, barring any unforeseen delays, be completed by the summer of 2001. Now, following a couple of months of uh, adjustments to the attraction, Fire Mountain would officially be unveiled on October 1, 2001 as part of Walt Disney World's 30th anniversary celebration. And then, Villain Mountain would follow. Presumably, it would be announced in the fall of 2004 and maybe open in 2006, possibly as part of Walt Disney World's 35th anniversary celebration. And that's all fine and good, except that you know it never happened. The plans took an unexpected detour. Atlantis was a box office flop, and most people probably don't even remember it. It certainly didn't have the staying power of Beauty and the Beast, so the idea was being reconsidered for a little over a year, and then 9-11 happened. Park attendance dropped sharply, and all new projects were put on hold. Now, the recession that followed went on for the better part of eight years. And when Disney decided to consider the two mountains, the Fire Mountain project was shelved somewhat permanently, well, at least for now. And the guests' interest in villains was kind of fading. Plus, as you've heard on previous podcasts of mine and other places, Disney executives were trying to get out of the Toontown business. They wanted to kind of move on from Mickey's Toontown Fair, And that would free up the 20K area to be less cartoony. And that began the genesis for the newest desire among guests, more princess interaction. But not to worry, the Dwarves Mine Train still captured a piece of the mountain and concept that each of the two original ideas had set forth. So the new Fantasyland was now the talk of the day, and it opened in the space that was occupied by both 20K and Toontown. Now, closing the proverbial loop, in 1994, a walk-through attraction at Disneyland Paris, named Le Mystère du Nautilus, I hope I said that right, The Mystery of the Nautilus opened, and that's a, f- a fitting place, since Jules Verne was French, after all. And the idea of Fire Mountain resurfaced to a degree in Japan. A reimagining of Volcania, led to the mysterious island at Tokyo Disney Sea. There, the journey to the center of the earth ride concludes with an explosion out of a volcano. Now, the Walt Disney Company reportedly is looking at making a remake of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And on January 6th of 2009, Variety reported that a remake was uh, in the offing and it was being planned with uh, Joseph McGinty, uh, a.k.a. McGee, attached to direct. The film serves as an original story of the uh, central character Captain Nemo as he builds his warship, the Nautilus. McGee has remarked that it will be a much more in keeping with the spirit of the novel than Richard Fleischer's film, in which uh, it will reveal what Aranax is up to and the becoming of Captain Nemo and how the, me- the man became at war with itself. Now, somewhere along the way, McGee dropped out, and that uh, David Fincher was brought in to uh, direct the film, um, and then uh, Brad Pitt has been rumored to play Captain Nemo. Now, still no word on who will actually wind up playing him, but I think it's fair to say that there will be a remake of the film coming. So everything does come full circle. And one more thing for you before I let you go. I do remember very distinctly that outside of Walt Disney's story that was at the end of The Magic Kingdom, um, on the, as you went in, if you went through the right-hand entrance under the train station, you made the immediate right, there was the Walt Disney story that was back in there. And it was one of the most amazing attractions I can remember seeing. It was a, mostly a sit down movie. But in the entryway, in the lobby before you went in to see the film, there was a number of different historical pieces there. And this was before they had uh, the Walt Disney One Man's Dream over at the studios and before they put a lot of things on display. So that was where the original Epcot model showed up. Uh, for a period of time, there was the. Um, City of Tomorrow that Walton had envisioned as uh, uh, Progress Land uh, was displayed there. And then also, one of the other thing, cool things that they had there for many, many years... Was the Nautilus that they used in the 1954 film? It was uh, displayed in a case, and they had some flashing lights on it, and it was the coolest thing. And I used to go in and just see that attraction just to look at the Nautilus. And I, I love the show anyway, but it, I would stand there and maybe watch two or three. You know, stand there for two or three cycles of the show, so I could just stare at the Nautilus. It was one of the coolest things. It just got into my imagination and into my psyche, and I really enjoyed seeing it. And uh, I wonder where it is today, and I wonder if it's going to show up in uh, any of the uh, Disney properties in any of the museums or um, maybe over at One Man's Dream at some point. I really don't know. But that is it. I hope you've enjoyed my three-part look back at 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and its complete story. And please feel free to provide some comments and feedback to me. I'd love to hear them. Well, that's it for this week, and thanks very much for tuning in. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. <laughs>
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Disney view podcast. Show notes can be found on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. podcast.net. Looking to do some travel planning. Want to find an authorized Disney vacation planner. You should visit destinations in Florida. Original music you hear in this podcast is courtesy of sound on uh, music. You can find his music at ReverbNation.com slash Our thanks also go to Doug for his continued contributions to the show You can find links to other great Disney podcasts as well as the latest Twitter feed and the Disney Buzz on DisneyPodcast.net And don't forget to check out Dave's iPhone apps There's a Hidden Mickeys app for finding and sharing hidden Mickeys at all of the Disney parks around the world. There's also an app designed especially for pin traders. You can keep track of all your pins and your wish lists. Please be generous with your time or a donation to Autism Speaks. We do hope that you've enjoyed your visit and that you drive home safely. Show number 136.